Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Jason Shu, co-founder of Research Affiliates and founder and CIO of Raylian Global Advisors, a quantitative investment management firm focused on the Chinese market. Jason walks us through the major investing factors and what goes into them, his focus on factor investing in China and the opportunity it presents, his firm's China 2.0 investing approach, and much more. Investors interested in investing factors and international investing will like this one a lot. Thanks so much for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Raylian's Jason Chu. Hi, Jason. Thank you for jumping on with us today. Hi, glad to be here. We are excited to talk to you about factor investing, investing in China, the differences between the U.S. and Chinese markets, and a lot more. But before we get into all that, I wanted to just ask you a little bit more about your background and experiences. And, you know, what we've, this is our, we're coming up on our 100th podcast episode, and we've interviewed a lot of successful investors. And one of the things that we, see sometimes is that, you know, many of those really successful investors, they often come from like other disciplines or maybe the foundation of what they've learned. It comes from something else, not necessarily like an investing or finance track early on in their experiences. So what I wanted to ask you about to start was sort of the path of migrating from physics to finance. And how do you think physics actually has helped you uh, become a professional investor? Well, I would say the, the, Things that I learned while studying physics uh, that end up being super helpful is, of course, uh, you know, programming, uh, using uh, really computational techniques to help us process large amount of data. It's just something that computers are much better at than, than humans are, right? The very subtle uh, patterns that the human eye, the human mind just can't pick up on, uh, the computer's great at. So I think humans should specialize in what we do well, which is really the intuition, the narratives behind what's going on, and then let the computer just sort of execute on that and uh, and really find uh, patterns that, that are sort of too minute uh, for, for sort of human, human eyes and the human, uh, I would say, uh, perception. Uh, and that, that's what I really learned from physics is to really bring in uh, computer software uh, technology to help us do our jobs better. Yeah, you were sort of, I think, at the it was it was the right timing for it because it was right around early like late '90s, early 2000s when you sort of were doing some of that work, correct? Yes, uh, I would say that was when we started to have enough computational power and really much better quality data available to do quantitative analysis. I think prior to that point, if you try to feed market data corporate data to computers, um, you, you would often struggle with uh, runtime. Uh, so it, I, I was lucky to be born uh, at the point in time uh, such that, uh, you know, by the time my career is starting to take off, the computational technology and a lot of the statistical uh, toolkit and statistical science have matured to a state where it, it becomes useful for investing. What is the background story with you and Rob Arnott and the co-founding of Research Affiliates? Well, that goes all the way back to 2001. So, you know, Rob and I met at, uh, at UCLA, and uh, this was when Rob had just sold his last business, 
and was looking to do something else new. You know, we, we co-taught a class at UCLA, but I think both of us quickly figured out, you know, what's more fun and exciting is to really apply academic research, uh, to apply what we uh, respectively know to, to markets and to serve investors uh, rather than, than simply uh, just sort of lecture uh, at, at business schools. And, and that's how we got started. 2002 was when we first launched our uh, first product. Uh, and uh, it literally was, you know, two guys in a garage, one Bloomberg, and uh, and then you know been a lot of good luck and good people helping us. And then over the course of the next, you know, 15 years, we took it from zero to about 200 billion dollars. Another great company founded out of a garage in California. <laughs> um, one of the things that in, in doing a little bit of research on your background, um, I realized you've been the editor of the. Uh, investment management, um, and the Journal of Investment Management, and also the Journal of Index Investing for a number of years. And I was kind of thinking of like, in that role, you're sort of like forced to consume and stay on top of, you know, developments that are happening in the investing space. So do you think being the editor of that has helped you in terms of developing and of those two journals has helped you in terms of developing and refining investment strategies and maybe even benefited you in other ways? beyond strategy development? Absolutely. Uh, and this is a very, very competitive industry. Uh, you know, the, the quantitative field in particular, uh, always new technology, uh, new tools, new models being developed. So you really want to stay abreast to be competitive. Uh, and part of forcing yourself to stay current is, of course, to publish and submit your papers to journals where other referees uh, will, will give you comments. And if you get rejected, you know you, you're not doing quality enough work. And same thing, you know, getting involved in journals, uh, you know, being on the editorial board, uh, doing a lot of refereeing. Uh, first of all, you learn a lot of ideas from sort of the newer researchers who are coming up with sort of new ways to think about data. Uh, so you do learn a lot in the refereeing process, right? Even though you're refereeing other people's work, Frankly, you, you also consume their work and you are forced to, uh, to think deeply about uh, the new research that's coming through. And so that's been incredibly helpful in my career. Uh, I would say um, e even you know, today that, that I, I sit on a number of journal boards, uh, I still feel like I constantly learn from, from people who are submitting papers. Uh, so even when I reject a paper, I learn a lot from the process of thinking through what's, what's wrong with that research. Yeah, picking up on the idea of academic journals, um, you, you don't just review for academic journals. You've written a lot of articles yourself for academic journals. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of people on the podcast who are factor investors, and we've had some people who have published research, but I don't think we have anyone who's published as much as you have. So what I want to do at the beginning here is, is take a chance to go through the major factors and to maybe get your take on you know, their, some, some of the work you've done around them, but also where we are right now with them and uh, you know, relative to history. Um, and I want to start with value. Because value is, you know, if you go back and look 80 years, you know, th there's a significant value premium that shows up in the data. But if you look, you know, since the publication of Fama and French, or even if you look in the most recent decade, you see a lot, you either see a lower premium or you don't see, you see a negative premium. And I'm wondering, you know, that's led some people to say, all right, value investing is dead. It doesn't work anymore, whether too, too many people are following it or for whatever reason, it just doesn't work anymore. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and, and what you, how you balance the long-term data supporting value with what we've seen recently that says maybe it's not working as well. Got it. So I, I prefer to talk about value premium as more of a anti-glitz and anti-glamour premium. You know, historically, if you think about sort of the behavioral reason behind why buying something that's a little boring, 
otherwise really strong fundamental, strong cash flow. Why that works? It's less about the stock you're buying. It's about the stocks you're not buying. Right? It's about the the sexy, glitzy stories that's uh, currently commanding you know, 200 times earnings. If you avoid those, you do well historically. Uh, now, of course, that means you need to be dealing with inefficient markets where people go crazy. Right? They're willing to overpay for things that are just bad ideas. Now, as markets become more efficient, and usually you measure that by the number of sort of retail traders in the market. So the U.S. has become very efficient over time, right? Today, okay, except the recent, you know, uh, few few years again, dominated by uh, Robinhood traders, um, U.S. has been quite efficient, right? It's like 3% retail trading. And so with that, you're not going to have a lot of people who overpay for growth, who make the mistake, and therefore value stocks by comparison, don't give you an advantage. And I think that's what we've seen the last 30 years. As markets become more efficient, people who overpay for unreasonable growth stories have just sort of evaporated out of the market. So mostly for the people who bought Amazon 20 years ago, right, who bought Apple 10, 15 years ago, uh, they were paying reasonable price for reasonable growth. Uh, and then so there's not going to be a lot of benefit to, to get on the other side of that trade. And one of the uh, one of the interesting things you guys have done is, you know, if, if a deep value strategy can obviously be very volatile, a deep value strategy can be difficult for investors to follow and have long periods of underperformance. But one of the interesting things you guys did with research affiliates is you came up with this idea of fundamental index, which gets indirectly at value, but it is not the deep value strategy. And I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about how you do that and, and the whole concept of fundamental index. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, so when you think about uh, value investing in a context of you just want to avoid whatever is capturing people's imagination, it's not about buying whatever is the cheapest, right? It's buying something that's uh, become cheaper and avoiding something that's become a lot more expensive. Essentially saying, look, people get too excited and it's not just about a tech stock, right? It could be about any stock, it could be about anything. And so if you contra-trade against sort of market sentiment, right? When prices run away and the fundamental is actually relatively flat, you sort of rebalance away from it. And when prices fall a lot, and really the fundamental doesn't move very much either, it's probably pessimism driving prices. And again, you rebalance into that. So we really think of the right way to take advantage of the behavioral defect that, that we see in markets is to do sort of micro level uh, contra trading against price rather than you know, doing a screen and say, I'm just going to buy the, the highest, you know, uh, dividend yielding stock, or I'm just going to buy the um, uh, lowest um, uh, PE multiple stock. Because that gets you into very extreme concentration into a sector. It, it makes you always anti-growth, anti-tech, which is not necessarily what will drive return. Uh, so, so really what we advocate today is much more about take advantage of these small excesses in markets, right? When it gets too optimistic, you, you want to rebalance away from the winners and take some profit. And, and do the reverse on the opposite end, too. Before we move on from value, I just want to ask you one more question around price to book. Um, you know, price to book has a unique distinction that it's, it's the most used factor in the academic research. But these days, it's also in the practitioner side, it's probably the most hated factor, um, obviously, for maybe some good reason with intangible assets and things like that. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you think price to book is still relevant today? Do you think it still is a way to people can evaluate companies? I said, you know, price to book, if you look at it uh, in the U.S., it means you're not holding any tech firms. Right? That's clearly a problem. right? You would not have participated in what's driven the U.S. growth the last two decades. And if you do that outside of the U.S., say applying it to emerging markets, which are pretty inefficient markets where you expect strategies to work better. No, in emerging markets, there's a simple price to book which puts you into mostly state-owned enterprises, right? With a huge book value, but really um, don't perform very well for obvious reasons. 
So I would say price to book probably at the time of discovery was just very easy. The data is easy to get, not super uh, sort of um, controversial, right? Because anyone can look up book and you can say, okay, well, book probably contains some fundamental information. But today it's probably the least useful, especially given intangible. Now, I, I do want to say a lot of people are trying to cram in a lot of intangible into book value uh, in part because they want to make sure that the, a U.S. portfolio based on price to book would include more growth companies, right? So it's just a way to cheat and say, okay, we know tech firms have done really, really well. Is there a way to sort of cram in intangible so we buy more tech firms? So it's a bit of a cheat. What you really want to test is if you cram a lot of intangibles, uh, could you make this work, say, outside of U.S.? Or do they select the right companies? And I think the, the jury's out on that one. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's that's a constant thing right now is can we fix price to book or do we just discard it altogether? You know, you've seen a lot of, like you said, we've seen a lot of interesting ways people look at, you know, how can we maybe modify it to make it useful? But like you said, maybe we don't have enough data yet to say that one way or the other. Um, I want to ask you, I want to move on to quality quick and, and ask you about that. You know, if, if you ask investors, do you want to invest in quality? They'll say, absolutely, I love investing in quality. And then if you say, all right, what is quality? They really have no idea. You know, you, you talk even even inside like the, the best asset management firms, you'll see completely different definitions of what quality is. And you wrote a paper called What is Quality? And so I wanted to basically ask you the question that you came up with in the paper, which is in your eyes, what is quality? What's the best way to define it? Uh, so, so this is a paper I, I published in the Financial Analyst Journal. Uh, and, and I just want to brag a little bit I guess on, on behalf of my co-authors as well. We, we won the best paper award last year for that, for that research. And it's a very simple question, right? People say quality investing makes sense. And then we probably all nod and say, oh, yeah, we want to buy quality firms. And then when you say, okay, so when you're looking at quality firms, what exactly do you mean? So if you go out there and look at quality uh, indices, you know, MSCI would, would have uh, a definition of, you know, FTSE Russell would have a definition. You go talk to manager, they say, oh, we use quality screens. And they would have very different definitions. <laughs> and it's just not obvious. Um, is this like just a fudge factor or is there something correlated that's inherently special about uh, a quality company? And I would say it's, it's a mess when you go look, right? It really, a, the way the industry is using it, it's a bit of a fudge factor, right? Everyone gets to define uh, what they like and what they like becomes the quality screen for, for their strategy. <coughs> now, when we sort of look through everything that defines quality, there are only a few things that seems to sort of reliably work over time. So if you look at quality, that sort of measures the profitability. So basically, you know, the, the ROE for a company, and that seems to, to, to lead to uh, sustained investment results. Uh, so essentially what we're talking about, firms that uh, have a strong enough lead versus the competition within their sector, that they have a better margin, uh, that they continue to plow back and reinvest and continue to maintain uh, high uh, return on equities. Those firms do seem to do well over time. Uh, when you look at, you know, quality as it's measured by the capital structure, uh, as measured by governance, those all seem to perform well over time. Basically, we're talking about firms that are very responsible in terms of not being too in debt, keeping enough cash, being able to time the mar market cyclicality so they, they have enough cash going into cyclical downturn. You know, those firms do well. They just you know, prudent, sensible management. You look at governance, where firms have good governance structure. Uh, you know, that tends to, to, to be a reliable uh, way to select winners. Outside of that, uh, other things are probably more marketing and noise than they are useful. 
Why do you think quality works? You know, it's a factor like value is pretty easy to explain in sort of a risk or mispricing based framework. I mean, value stocks tend to be riskier. There's there's reasons why investors might misprice value stocks. Quality is a little harder. It's, it's hard to say these companies are riskier. And it's also hard to say why investors would systematically misprice them. Why, why do you think quality works? Yeah, and this is absolutely about finding the dimensions of quality that people don't appreciate. Like you say, a quality firm, almost by definition, right, is not risky. So you can't argue, oh, it's it's a risk premium, right? It can't be a compensation for risk. Otherwise, you shouldn't use the, the moniker of quality, right? Uh, so it really is a dimension of something the firm does well, but the market underappreciates. So take, for example, uh, you talked about capital structure. Right? Firms, uh, as it turns out, you know, firms are heavily geared, very lever, they are risky. But they don't lead to better outcome. You go, you know, why is that, right? It doesn't more risk lead to, to more return, right? You should you should be paid a risk premium. So as it turns out, investors underappreciate firms that actually keep a lot of cash around. Uh, what we find in corporate finance is that if you keep a lot of cash around, um, generally it's not because you run out of good ideas and you're 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 just not investing efficiently. What it means is you actually have a very prudent CEO who can avoid this. You know, money burning a hole in my pocket problem, right? They're, they don't suffer from hubris. They don't overinvest. They can hold on to cash because they recognize that the inevitable industry downturn is going to come and cash is going to be king. And they actually are able to go into very successful consolidation and merge uh, competitors who have perhaps a short-term technology advantage over them. So, uh, so the quality of the capital structure tends to actually suggest uh, very, very high quality in management. And I think that's historically underappreciated or even punished whenever you see a CEO holding on to more cash and not investing aggressively in the short run. So I would say quality works not because all, all things quality uh, are undervalued, but enough of them. And you want to identify the, the quality dimensions that are a little nuanced, a little subtle that the market may not quite know. And those are the ones that's going to pay you in the long run. That makes sense. Um, all right. In our, in our tour of factors, I wanted to move on to momentum next. And, you know, if you, if you look in the historical testing, momentum is a very, very strong factor. But you wrote a paper, Will Your Factor Deliver? An Examination of Factor Robustness and Implementation Costs. And that sort of is the crux of the issue with momentum is people people don't argue that there's a significant momentum premium in the data. They argue whether you can take it into the real world because of transaction costs. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that and, and how, how you view the use of momentum in the real world. Well, it's both transactions costs and it is also... Um at the end of the day, client experience, right? If you're if you're in high frequency and you've done, you know, transactions cause managed to a science, right? It's all automated, it's all technology based, and uh, and you are trading very very small volume and very careful with liquidity. Yes, absolutely, it works really really well, but the capacity is not large. So mostly we're talking about. Uh, a, a high frequency shop that's mostly managing the founder's money and, and that, that tends to be where they live and live best. Once you start to talk about managing money for pensions, right? We're talking about very, very big checks that come through and you gotta deploy that and you gotta keep enough liquidity for for potential, you know, re redemption and withdrawals. But then you start to have capacity issues. So that's one problem. And the other one is uh, look, these are these are investors who, in some ways, um, care about the the externality uh, of their of their investments, right? Are they creating a positive externality? Are they giving capital to uh, good companies? You know, are they giving capital to undervalued companies and restoring fair prices, right? Helping us price discovery. When they start to question that, right, momentum doesn't do it, right? Because momentum sometimes. Look, there is a speculative stock; it's running up, and you're trying to get ahead of the the retail frenzy. 
and betting on you know you're not the uh, you're, you're not the last fool right there's a greater fool right when you say well that's what's happening in momentum then i would say institutional investors particularly pension funds they get a little less comfortable knowing that that's what's driving profits for them right just sort of betting on a greater fool in the market to perhaps get into a stock that's already overvalued and doesn't make sense yeah, we found that as well. You know, with momentum, it tends to be the hardest factor to explain to individual investors or to any investor because, you know, investors, I think, want to have some fundamental tie to what they're buying. And with momentum, all we're saying is, all right, the stock's up a lot. Let's buy it. Well, then the question is, well, why is it up? Well, we don't care why it's up. Just buy it because it's up. And, you know, that, that I think, I don't know if you found that as well, but that could be very difficult for investors to understand. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think most investors, especially at the institutional level, right, they, they care about, they're buying something of value, right? It's not just about making a quick profit. Um, just to finish up factors, I want to ask you quick about low volatility. It's, it's another very difficult factor. You know, for me, I find it the most difficult factor to explain because obviously if I'm taking by definition less risk, you know, I would expect to get less return. And, you know, the argument with low volatility is I either get, take less risk and get the same return, or maybe I take less risk and get an even better return, uh, you know, or at least the advocates of it would say. So I'm wondering if you, have you done research around low volatility and, and what do you think about the factor? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, low, low volatility is probably the hardest one to explain, even though in academia, you know, value is the more popular one. There are more papers about it. But the one that truly is just hard for anyone to explain is, is the low vol factor, right? It's less risk, right? It's by construction, less risk, right? It has lower beta, right? It has lower volatility, it has lower skewness, but yet it pays you more. And this seems like such a free lunch, right? It should go away immediately once you realize this existed. Uh, and I think the only reason that it's still around is because by and large, the, the global markets don't consider volatility as risk, right? Even though that is probably the, the most sensible definition of risk, we are so institutionalized these days, we think of tracking it as risk, right? Because it's about, are you uh, outperforming the S&P 500? Are you deviating away from the S&P 500? So there could be, for take for example, right? You know, Tesla is a huge component stock of the S&P 500, even though it just got added. If you say, you know, Tesla, doesn't make sense. It's way too expensive and it's assuming the kind of growth I don't believe in. But if you were to not have Tesla in your portfolio, all of a sudden you have a big tracking error risk, right? You might underperform S&P 500 because so much of it is in Tesla, so much of it may be in tech that you don't like. And it's that fear of not matching the S&P 500 that caused a lot of people to go into the high beta, high vol stocks or such com large component stock, even if they don't you know, want that risk and don't think that risk pays. And so part of that is really institutional friction driven by how much we have become so tracking air focused, so benchmark focused instead of more risk return focused. Um, we're going to pivot off of factors here and let's talk about um, the other company and investment firm that you're heading up, um, Raylian, which is uh, where you're applying factors to the Chinese market and Chinese equities. And we'll talk about the quantum mental approach that you guys run and we'll try to kind of peel back the onion there. But I just want to maybe take a step back and can you just provide at a high level, this is a pretty broad question, but, you know, talk about the Chinese market and maybe the, the differences between the U.S. market or similarities just in terms of size, liquidity, sector composition and sort of what the opportunity is in Chinese stocks. Got it. Uh, so obviously, when you think about China, right, the thing that comes to mind is it's probably the biggest growth engine out there. Uh, so it's it's not like a Vietnam where it's a growth engine, but may not be big enough and liquid enough for you to invest in. You know, China is, is both very growing very fast and also very big. So it's it's one of the remaining 
high growth liquid data that one could access. I'll just give you some data. Last 15 years, uh, the average Chinese company uh, grew about 15% per annum in terms of EPS growth. And that compares to in the U.S. where the average company grew only uh, about 5% per annum in terms of EPS growth. So that's how much more growth you can buy. And another thing that's interesting is because China is so new and there's just a lot of fear, you know, it's a lot of uh, optics fear, right? This is a market where arguably the administration is communist, right? It, is it going to be anti-capital market? Uh, is there pro property protection that's uh, on par with U.S. as an investor? Are there sort of risks I don't understand as a result? You know, Chinese company, even though they grow very fast, have an average P.E. ratio of 17 times versus U.S. today. You're looking at an average P.E. ratio of more like 37 times, right? So you're buying growth cheaper in, in part because a lot of investors, uh, um, they're, they're not as comfortable uh, accessing that market. So on the beta side, right, you're getting more growth uh, at a cheaper price. And then there's the alpha component, right? U.S. is very mature, very efficient, you know, GameStop and AMC notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. Generally, things are priced in a way that that makes sense. In China, it's almost the complete opposite, right? It's eighty to ninety percent retail traded. Um, you know, take for example last year, twenty-eight million new retail investors came online in China last year. Right? That's that's more than the population of Australia. Uh, so you got you know lots of new day traders coming into that market, making prices very noisy in the short run. Uh, and therefore create a lot of alpha opportunity for anyone who's more disciplined, who understands the sort of the fundamentals of, of investing. Uh, and the alpha prospect in some ways is probably more interesting than even the, the data store. So I would say that's sort of the biggest contrasting between China and the U.S. This is a very retail-driven market, uh, and therefore alpha opportunity is a lot larger. The U.S. is much more institutional. And from a growth perspective, you know, China is a sort of young uh, sort of uncorrelated growth beta, and U.S. of course is that dominant, mature uh, beta that, that has a lot less growth going forward now. China has a, like a peg ratio of one, and the U.S. has a peg ratio of five. <laughs> That's the P over the growth rate. So yeah, the opportunities are probably a lot <laughs> given uh, in China. So one of the, the and you kind of hit on this a little bit with the with the retail investor growth. But um, one of the things that I was reading when I um, was doing the research on your ETF is that you do take investor behavior into consideration as one of there's a lot of inputs, but one of the inputs in terms of how you're constructing your your strategy. And I wanted just to ask you like how how does the you know, average Chinese investor differ from maybe the U.S. investor here, and what are they invested in? I mean, are there passive investment vehicles over there? Is it like is everybody just buying individual stocks? Is the mutual fund complex as big as the U.S. or just give us a sort of overview of the landscape? I would say the, the most important news that everyone should pay attention to is Vanguard just announced that they are leaving China, and uh, that means you know passive investing is too early uh, for China right now. Right? If you talk to uh, U.S. investors, those who are advised by an advisor who are a bit more sophisticated, they would say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I want to buy a low-cost passive ETF because that's good for me. Otherwise, it's too hard for me to beat the market. My market's very efficient. In China, the average retail investor is significantly less financially savvy. Like this is their first time investing in a the market. They're day trading heavily. They're using a lot of margin. Uh, and they certainly don't believe in passive index. They all believe they can make 100% return very quickly by applying lots of margin and day trading themselves. So the result of that is uh, mutual fund companies actually struggle 
to sell sensible products like like index fund. Right? The only thing that sells well would be like very concentrated thematic fund on say 5G, right? on semiconductors, um, vaccine concept. And, and that's kind of the difference and it speaks to where uh, the industry is in terms of the life cycle uh, due to the maturity of the end consumer. You know, I know Warren Buffett is considered sort of, I don't, I don't know how to say it in, in Chinese or Mandarin, but he's considered the god of stocks among Chinese investors. Um, but it doesn't sound like they're necessarily following his, I mean, if they're, if they're much more active and, you know, using a lot of margin, they probably um, admire Buffett, but they may not be following his sort of investing advice and principles. Yeah, I, I think uh, so in, in China, so I was going to say in China, you know, they refer to Warren Buffett as, as really Gushen, the god of stock. But the only reason they admire him is not because of his methods, which is buy and hold, do a lot of deep research. They admire him because he has $100 billion, right? And everyone's trying to figure out how do I make $100 billion very quickly? But they refuse to believe to do so. You got to do deep research and you got to buy and hold. <laughs> yeah. One of, the, um, one of the concerns that a lot of investors have, and you kind of address this, but I'm just interested in you start shaking that a little bit more, is that, you know, in China, there's sort of a lack of freedom within the country and the role that the government plays in terms of monitoring or maybe affecting decisions um, on some of these enterprises that might be, you know, state owned or partially state owned. So, do you, I mean, do you think that's a valid, are those valid concerns and, and what would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah. So, so there are two dimensions to, to my response. First of all, absolutely. You should be concerned by, you know, the impact of the state. Uh, you know, the state is very interventionist. Uh, and so, first of all, right, there, there's just a lot of state control companies, state-owned enterprises that trade in China. In some ways, you can think of, like, if the U.S. decided to enlist the DMV and the postal office, right? Like, you go, well, do I want to be owners of those two stocks, even if they're listed, right? It's just how big of a you know, footprint does the government have in those companies, and are they going to be great drivers of value? So, you got a lot of state-owned enterprises in China that clearly you probably don't want to be a shareholder uh, to. Uh, those are generally the regional state-owned enterprises where they are just systematically leaned against to uh, to to essentially help out with regional GDP growth, to to employ more when there's a bit of a uh, sort of unemployment spikes. And clearly, you, you 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 while you applaud them for the social service, you don't want to be shareholders there. But there are centrally connected state-owned enterprises, which often are the face of Beijing, right? They represent the strength of Beijing, the face of Beijing. It's generally run by the A-team. And so very, very good business managers uh, who are incredibly successful. And oftentimes, uh, clearly, Beijing kicks in with subsidy and policy favors to, to help them compete. Uh, and they often benefit from monopoly rights. And those are firms that actually... Uh, often great dividend payers, very, very safe. So they're, they're actually great investments. Uh, they're, they're centrally connected. Enterprise actually outperformed the broad market by 2%, whereas the regional sale enterprises underperformed the broad market by 6.5%. So there's a difference uh, in, you know, in, in the, the better quality state-owned enterprises versus the lower quality state-owned enterprises. So that's one dimension. The other one is really regulators and how they intervene in the market. Uh, and they do absolutely intervene, right? I, I don't think there, there's any way to, to sort of interpret what happens in China other than there's just a great degree of intervention. But I think what 
you know, sort of warrants a little bit of conversation is the reason for doing so, right? It's easy to have this attitude that, ah, you know, it's, it's sort of evil communist bureaucrats with very little competence just messing around with markets because they don't know markets, they don't trust markets. But that's really not true. Um, if you talk to regulators, um, you can think of them as, you know, U.S. regulators are like Montessori parenting. Uh, Chinese regulators are like Tiger Mom parenting, right? If you talk to regulators, they just go, look, our market's 90% retail. People don't know what they're doing. They do self-harming things. And when they lose money, you know, they, they, they run the protest outside a stock exchange. And it's just very irritating. Uh, and so what you see is the stock exchange feels like, okay, it's our job to protect them from themselves. Um, so they make it very hard for a firm to go IPO, right? They actually do like parallel separate underwriting to make sure a good company get listed. Once they get listed, they still feel like, okay, there's a cahoot between management and investment banks trying to hype up stock prices. So they actually write independent research reports to challenge what the CEO is saying, to question their, their you know, filing with the stock exchange versus their tax filing. Again, to warn individual investors who don't do research about bad companies. Uh, and as a result, they, they can be very interventionist. They're out there saying, look, there's too much margin utilization. We think uh, this is dangerous. They're going to say, oh, there's a bubble in 5G. People are, are getting too excited about that. And again, this is things you don't see in the U.S. It's just not policymakers' place to, to talk about markets. Uh, but in China, the policymakers see that it's, it is their responsibility to aggressively talk and intervene when necessary. I want to move back to factors quick. And you know, we went through all the major factors in the U.S. at the beginning. But I know through Raylan, you've, you've done a lot of work looking at applying the major factors to China. And I'm wondering what you found in that in terms of how the, how the, the standard factors work in the Chinese environment. Oh, absolutely. So the depressing thing and the embarrassing thing of also being an American business school professor is that, you know, we teach people value investing. We teach them all sorts of factors and uh, really cool sort of accounting ratio analysis. And then at the end of class, we say, but they really haven't worked for a long time. So maybe you shouldn't try this. Uh, but in China, just about everything we teach in the business school work really, really well because it's a very inefficient market where not a lot of people know about this, right? The problem in the U.S. is everyone's gone to business school. Everyone's learned about this and are applying it, and so you really can't make money. But in China, uh, very few people are aware of it. So you know, value works really well because uh, there are just some crazy growth names in China. If you avoid them, you do really, really well. Uh, low vol works really well because everyone else loves high vol for gambling purposes. If you you know, buy at a boring low vol, you actually uh, make a lot more money. So, so things uh, work really well in China for the standard factors. And of course, in China, given that it is a different market with a lot more retail, uh, sort of other factors that don't even exist uh, outside of China uh, work really well and, and are, are actually quite interesting when you look into them. Yeah, it sounds like all of us that have been struggling value investors over the past decade may, may want to take a look at picking up our operations and moving it over to China. Um, we might get some better results over there. Um, one of the things you talked about on your, on your website is the, is the idea of the, what you're doing in, in China is very different. And, and you described it as the China 2.0 approach relative to what's traditionally be done. And, and I'm wondering if you could just talk about what you mean by the China 2.0 approach to investing in China. Yeah. So if you take, uh, I guess, you know, factor investing or smart beta, that's, uh, you know, that, that's just getting popularity and perhaps, you know, all the respective quants in, in the U.S. do about the same thing, where everyone's got, you know, value, some quality factors in there, some low vol, uh, and as a result, they're, they're, you know, kind of somewhat correlated and perhaps have commoditized at that research. Uh, in China, it's not just the standard things that work. 
there's so much more that works, right? There's so many dimensions of sort of uh, behavioral defects that show up just because it's a retail dominated market with very little sort of institutional trading that's sort of uh, governing that market and arbitraging out the inefficiencies. So in, in China, what you first of all want to do is that, you know, take all the standard factors and then localize it to make sure, like, you know, well, how do you capture accrual in the U.S.? Well, what are different ways of capturing accrual, right? Like in the U.S., you know, you look at account receivable. In China, there's account receivable uh, and then a bunch of other receivables. You got to make sense of, you know, what do you need to aggregate up to really measure the, the degree to which there's sort of accounting manipulation that you could sort of bring into the data for analysis. Uh, so it's sort of a deeper understanding, extending on the research uh, that's done in the U.S. for that uh, for them to be localized and appropriate for China. And then it's also to seek out alternative data. In China, the availability of data is mind-boggling. Right? We think of uh, an emerging market like China may, may suffer from lack of data. No, China has the opposite issue. It has way too much data. It's a matter of sort of cleaning it and making sense of it, right? Because China is a... Is a, is, a, is a market where, you know, when they start to collect data, it costs $5 to store, store one terabyte of data. So they basically capture, store everything. And if you ask nicely, uh, you can get access to them to analyze. Uh, and so you can, you can apply the latest, you know, uh, big data, machine learning technology to really get a lot more information where that's not possible in the U.S. You talk about the volume of data. How is the quality of data in China? I mean, for us, we, we've only worked with U.S. data, so we're used to fairly high quality data. I mean, is, is it a much bigger lift in China to get the data where you need it to be to, to apply the factors? Yeah, so the, the benefit of doing quant research in the U.S., and it ends up being a disadvantage as well, is we, we can go to Chris CompuStat, right? That's sort of really ultra high quality data that's been cleaned over and over again. Now, the benefit of using that is you don't have to do any work. Uh, the bad thing about doing that, uh, there's no barrier to entry, right? Everyone who's willing to pay could get that data and then run the same regression and, and will get the same result and do the same thing as you do. So it's hard to have a competitive edge. Uh, in China, data is very ugly. The reason it's ugly is there aren't a lot of quants in China. Uh, and so if you are selling data, uh, your margin is so bad, right? You just can't be bothered in uh, sort of fixing up the data. And because so few people use it, no one's contributing to improving the quality of the data as well. So it's going to take decades before really high quality sort of data becomes available. And so today, yeah, data is not expensive because not that many people use it, but it's also very poor quality and, and, and you're gonna have to do a lot of cleaning uh, to make sense of it and to make it useful. But, but you know, once you get over that hump, then it's enormous barrier to entry, which is great if you're an investor. All right, so uh, just one last question for you, Jason, and this is a standard closing question we like to ask all of our guests. Uh, based on your experiences in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would it be? Uh, I think a lot of investors today, uh, they, they read the news headline and they, they can think about U.S.-China as in competition. And it's about taking sides. Right? Do you believe U.S. is going to be a growth driver and you should continue to be overweight U.S.? Or do you go, no, no, U.S. is, uh, there's so many reasons for the U.S. To, to sort of lose its competitive edge, and therefore, you know, China is where you want to go. I think that's unnecessary, right? China and U.S. are going to be in this co-opetition for a long time, meaning they need to collaborate as two of the biggest, you know, growth drivers in the world, and they'll compete. They're, they're trying to sort of compete for, for you know, more business, uh, more consumer, more user, 
business model is going to compete, uh, that the talent is going to compete. And, and that's going to be good for global prosperity. And given that China in some way is more decoupled from the U.S. than ever, right? it's got a much bigger domestic consumption need than an export uh, need that uh, it'll, it'll be uncorrelated with the U.S. by and large. So what you want is you want to bet on both, not bet on one or the other. You can bet on both and let the uh, negative correlation uh, give you a smoother ride as both find ways to succeed, and then they're going to succeed differently, right? Very different political uh, environment, very different part of the growth curve that they reside. Uh, so I would say, you know, diversifying across the two you know, greatest growth drivers in human history is the likely uh, uh, way to find success in your portfolio. Good stuff. Thank you. So if people want to learn more about you, your firm, your research, your investing products that you offer, where can they go to find out more? Uh, please come to uh, our corporate website. Uh, Raylian.com, R-A-Y-L-I-A-N-T.com. Uh, for products, it's on funds, uh, F-U-N-D-S dot Raylian dot com. Uh, you know, find me on social media, you know, LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, you know, send me, drop me a line. I'll be very happy to, uh, to respond to any inquiry you might have. Thank you very much, Jason. This has been great. Thank you, Jason. This is great. Uh, thank you, guys. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.